Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Joanne Rinker, the Director of Practice and Content Development at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today, I'm speaking with Hope Washaw and Melinda Marianuk about their experience at the 2020 ADA Scientific Sessions and about the emerging science in the field of nutrition. Hope and Melinda are both registered dietitian nutritionists and certified diabetes care and education specialists with over 60 years of experience combined. As national leaders in diabetes care, education, and nutrition, they are the perfect guests to share highlights and key learnings. You really may want to have a pen and paper handy to capture notes on the many topics they heard about this year. So I'm really excited to be here today with Hope and Melinda. And to kick us off, for those who aren't aware, could you give us an overview of what ADA scientific sessions are? And then maybe what were the overarching themes of this conference? Thank you, Joanne. So to frame in our dialogue for this episode of The Huddle, Melinda and I chose topics that we believe impact or matter to the work of diabetes care and education specialists. Most people realize this was the first ever virtual ADA scientific session, so it was unprecedented. So content at this meeting covers a broad spectrum from clinical diabetes to genetics, immunology, and as I mentioned, islet cell biology. There are eight tracks in total, and that's not to mention the oral abstracts, posters, exhibit hall, award lectures, and more. Suffice to say, it's vast. In general, most of the content Melinda and I will cover was within the behavioral medicine, clinical nutrition, education, and exercise track. That's one track. That's a mouthful. As well as the clinical diabetes slash therapeutics track. Because the program was virtual this year due to coronavirus pandemic, all sessions were recorded during the last two weeks in May. This put delivery of services using telehealth, and virtual and digital delivery front and center of presenters' minds. And interestingly, there were a number of presentations that focused on disparities. These range from disparities in access to devices, to lack of representation of all ethnicities in studies, and disparities in care delivery. Interesting times for an ADA session, for sure. Doing the meeting virtually for sure had some drawbacks. More sitting on our butts rather than getting way over 10,000 steps a day. Doing hugs and mingling with colleagues and old friends and learning from them as well. But there were a number of interesting upsides that I think were surprising. The biggest for me was the chat box in the live sessions. 
Even though sessions were recorded, speakers were asked to be present as the recording of their sessions played. This allowed speakers to answer questions and for participants to dialogue in this chat box during the session. So it really added to the whole experience. As I understand, the Association for Diabetes Care and Education Specialists virtual meeting in mid-August will allow for similar interaction. I encourage everyone listening to register for the annual conference. Thank you, Hope. I encourage everyone to do that as well. Um, Hope, I know that you generated the idea for and you moderated the session on Saturday that focused on weight loss maintenance. Can you share some of those key learnings you walked away with? Sure. Um, This was a very exciting session for me to see come to fruition. Um, I was delighted to offer the idea along with recommending speakers to Allison Everett, who is our dietitian diabetes educator colleague who served on the ADA Scientific Sessions Planning Committee. I'm becoming passionate about this topic. It's an important one that I feel we don't talk about as clinicians nearly enough and talk with people trying to achieve weight loss nearly enough. Um, The speakers at this symposium were renowned experts in their area, and we addressed four interrelated topics. The first was on overcoming physiologic changes from weight loss. This was presented by very well-known Dr. Michael Rosenbaum. His key message was that people's metabolic and brain responses to food changes for good with weight loss. The actions one takes to lose weight are not the same as those actions needed for long-term weight maintenance. Rosenbaum added, when asked, that research shows there's no major difference in energy intake or expenditure on low-fat versus low-carbohydrate eating plans for weight loss. He suggested focusing on the quality of foods and the nutrients one eats. Our second speaker, I think, is a new name, Colin Greaves. He's a psychologist from the UK, and he spoke on the psychological and environmental aspects of weight loss maintenance. He and his research team in the UK have developed a tension theory of weight loss maintenance, and with it, a conceptual model of the dynamics of weight loss maintenance. Um, This model very much resonates with me. It portrays the chronic tension between relapse, gaining lost weight back, and maintenance. Greaves recommends that clinicians focus on helping people make changes that minimize the tension, and he encourages this from the first day of a weight loss effort. He tells clients, make changes you can live with, which I think is very sage advice. Our third speaker was Dr. Jim Hill from the University of Alabama, Birmingham in the U.S. Um, Dr. Hill is an expert in obesity and metabolism. He addressed the importance of physical activity in weight loss maintenance. His bottom line was that physical activity is like your fighting chance. It counters many of the physiologic responses to reductions in body weight. It is the action or group of actions that people can take or do to counter these metabolic changes that I mentioned earlier that were discussed by Michael Rosenbaum. 
And it appears from the National Weight Control Registry, about which I'll talk in a minute, people who successfully keep pounds off do in a range of about 60 minutes of accumulated aerobic and resistance training activity every day, plus they minimize their sedentary activity. And speaking of the National Weight Control Registry that Dr. Hill and Dr. Rena Wing at Brown initiated over 30 years ago, our last speaker, Dr. Graham Thomas, manages the day-to-day operations of this registry at Brown. He shared the learnings of this registry that now has about 10,000 plus registrants. The point he made that resonated the most with me was the use and weight loss maintenance counseling of the acceptance and commitment therapy. ACT is the acronym. And this is used as a means to help people refocus values and identity. There's so much more I could elaborate on, but I'll stop here and encourage people to find a way to watch the symposium and also to search on National Weight Control Registry, which has a long list of research studies that's come out of this registry. Thank you, Hope. Of course, the RDN in me is really enjoying this conversation about these nutrition sessions. So, Melinda, I know that you also attended some nutrition-focused sessions, um, among others, but can you share the content areas for those and maybe your key takeaways? Sure. Thanks, Joanne. It really was an amazing meeting for nutrition sessions. I didn't quickly do a count, but I made a list for a lot of my colleagues that I shared of all the nutrition-related sessions, not including abstracts, and I think there were over 30 of them. So, I'm also really proud to see so many dietitians from the United States, but particularly impressive ones from around the world. So I'll highlight a couple of dietitian presentations that I thought were particularly terrific. So I'll start with low carbohydrate, certainly popular hot topic. And there were presentations from a variety of teams, including a great debate on whether low-carb diets are appropriate for children in the pediatric community for type 1. So that was particularly interesting, and there's no clear answer. There's good points on both sides. But I wanted to highlight the presentation from a dietitian in Australia, uh, Jessica Turton, who is a PhD candidate and actually has several publications that are excellent. And one was a systematic review that she did of the use of low-carb diets in type 1 diabetes. And she concluded that there is insufficient evidence to point to low-carb being more effective than high-carb, but that both low-carb and high-carb diets can result in reduced A1C and insulin requirements, but more studies are needed for this population. She really spent time on a study that she published recently in Diabetes Obesity Metabolism that identified and mapped out the multiple inconsistencies seen in so many of the low-carb diets for people with type 2 diabetes. And she really had a message for dietitians that we need to better focus and identify the design and delivery models that are most effective. Because we know from the nutrition consensus paper that was recently released from ADA that low-carb is a viable option, it is safe, but 
there's so much inconsistency of how it is defined and delivered. So she's finding in some of the variables she's studying that there appears to be even better results when people are choosing whole foods, not necessarily the need to restrict calories, but have ad lib as long as the level of calories from carbohydrate is restricted, um, and having at least monthly contact with a dietitian or a, a healthcare provider. She also pointed out that low carb can be part of many other approaches, such as Mediterranean fasting or just overall low calorie. So Melinda, you mentioned fasting, which is kind of really on my radar. Can you tell me more maybe about what you learned about fasting? Yeah, sure. In fact, there was a great team that um, you know, we as diabetes care and education specialists should be particularly proud of. It featured several dietitians, nurses, and um, a person with diabetes, Barbara Eichhorst, Lorena Drago, Joy Pape, as well as Anna Norton. And they gave a really great overview of fasting, recognizing its role for cultural, religious, spiritual, and health, weight, diabetes purposes. So a particular interest to me was Anna uh, reporting on a survey that she did and finding that 47% of the respondents said they fast in some way for a variety of reasons, whether it's religious or health or weight loss, and about half of them report doing it more than 10 times a year. And they anecdotally were reporting in the comments section when asked, like, what frustrates you about fasting and what do you wish your healthcare provider knew um, and they said that they're frustrated that their healthcare providers are very close-minded about fasting. And they also, as people with diabetes, wish they had known more about the ways to decrease the risk of hypos, uh, about the need to stay hydrated, about how to adjust medication. So the point is, it's happening and we need to be more proactive. And the dietitians, in fact, were asking and recommending that as part of our assessment, we ask on a more regular basis about fasting. Do you ever fast? How often? For what reasons? And dig a little deeper if necessary to troubleshoot. Um, just another two comments. They spent some time on fasting as it relates to Ramadan and that holiday just recently wrapped up. This year it was between near the end of April and the end of May. But uh, myself, I've done a lot of work in Middle Eastern countries and became quite familiar with the benefits of teaching about diabetes several months prior to Ramadan. Uh, people who have diabetes or at risk for diabetes in the Islamic communities are very receptive to learning then. And there are some excellent resources that are available to help those of us that are not as familiar with the eating habits. And I might also point out that we sometimes think about Ramadan as a holiday related to fasting, but that's only for about uh, half the day during the sunlight hours. It also is a holiday of feasting after the sun goes down. So how to best modulate the risks of hypo and hyperglycemia. Of course, there was also big interest in intermittent fasting for weight loss, for blood glucose control, and for anti-aging and finding out the recommendation, of course, to find out what kind of fasting the person is talking about when they're talking about fasting. Is it alternate day fasting? Is it time-restricted fasting? So there were several presentations and including some comments and a review of the literature by the dietitians that I just mentioned, but talking about the benefits of alternate day fasting. Um, not still a lot of research in the diabetes population, but I think we're going to be seeing more of this 
And again, just like with low carbohydrate, we're going to have to really be specific when we read about these studies to better understand when you say alternate fasting on the alternate days, are you having zero calories? Are you having 800 or less calories? What's your definition? And all of them at this point seem to have some benefit and actually surprisingly few risks at this point. So stay tuned. I think it's a really interesting area to follow. Well, Linda, thank you so much for that recap. I'm really looking forward to really hearing and learning more about fasting and intermittent fasting kind of in the months and years to come. So I appreciate that recap. So switching gears just a little bit, you know, because of all of the work we've done over the last few years on danatech.org, you know, one of my favorite topics is technology. And so I'd like to learn a little bit more about some of those sessions. And I thought maybe we could start with Hope. Can you tell us maybe about any of the sessions that you attended that were technology focused? Sure. Um, There were, as would be expected, a number of sessions on the practical implementation and use of devices. And I think one thing I want to just, again, underscore here is that Melinda and I probably went to sessions that represented maybe a quarter to a third of what was going on in the whole of the meeting. Um, But there were a number of really excellent technology sessions from talking about blood glucose monitoring to CGM to smart insulin pens to pumps, DIY systems, do-it-yourself, and also future automated insulin delivery systems. I must say diabetes care and education specialists, again, were well represented with excellent talks. A few key points related to apps. Um, Rachel Stahl, who's an RDCDE in New York, gave a wonderful session as part of a symposium Um, And she was saying, we must be up to speed on what apps people are using, how they're using them, and talk amongst ourselves to share about the most valuable apps for people with diabetes. Rachel said, quote, simplicity drives the value of the app. She noted that most apps are free or very low cost. She also noted an interesting article. It looks like that she and David Ahn, another speaker at the symposium, and that's AHN, wrote in the August 2019 issue of Diabetes Spectrum. Another point with technology is we all plunge into delivering services virtually. We need to think about apps and technologies and tools available that can assist us in delivering our services in ways that benefit learning. I think we've got to be creative. From another talk on technology that included several diabetes care and education specialists, I got a fantastic analogy from Diana Isaacs to explain both A1C and coefficient of variation to people with diabetes. It goes like this. Think about having one of your feet in a pot of boiling water and the other in a pot filled with ice water. While the average of the two temperatures is room temperature, both feet feel awful. Apply this to glucose levels. It can feel awful to have large glucose variability and this doesn't lead to good outcomes. That is one analogy that I will not forget. Oh my gosh, Hope, I love that analogy that Diana provided. (laughs) I'm going to keep that in mind too. What a great teaching tip. 
Okay. I know that you both have an interest in precision medicine. Melinda, did you attend any sessions with that focus? Yeah. In fact, um, I helped plan a session related to that for the nutrition interest group. And people may not realize that similar with ADCES, ADA has interest groups, one in nutrition, and actually there's one on DSMES that also had and highlighted special focus areas. So yeah, the whole area of precision medicine in diabetes is starting to boom. And you know, the, asking the overarching question, are we applying the right treatment to the right person at the right time? Or how can we better target treatment? And of course, many of the sessions were talking about this as it relates to medication. And I might just point out that there's a whole initiative in ADA that's jointly going on with the um, European Association for the Study of Diabetes, EASD, on the perspectives of the future of precision medicine. But I'm particularly interested in, okay, does this and how does this apply to precision nutrition? And there's a growing body of literature. And in fact, there were two abstracts, one presented by a dietitian, Orly Ben-Yakov, from Israel. And she reported on a study of people with prediabetes and found that of these 225 adults who were randomized into a Mediterranean-style diet or to a diet following a personalized set of recommendations based on factors, including an analysis of the microbiome, the individuals in the personalized nutrition group had much better outcomes as measured by glucose levels above 140. It was much lower in the group following the intervention diet, and their A1C was twice as low as the group in the Mediterranean diet. So she also shared some preliminary results on individuals with type 2 diabetes. So we saw sessions on precision medicine and precision nutrition on several days throughout the meeting. So I think that this is also something really exciting to be watching for. Thanks, Melinda. I know, Hope, this is also of interest to you. Did you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Melinda. I was really struck by the number of sessions on precision medicine. Um, I'll just offer a couple points on the topic. I've been following now for a few years the interesting research on trying to suss out what now appears to be four homogeneous subtypes of type 2 diabetes, or as one researcher calls them, clusters. They range from looking like a presentation of latent autoimmune diabetes in adults to people with obesity and severe insulin resistance. There was also research presented that discussed different responses, and Melinda alluded to this, to blood glucose-lowering medications based on ethnic backgrounds and genetic differences. So I think the take-home message here for diabetes care and education specialists on this work to date is don't lump or manage all people with type 2 diabetes as having one disease. It really isn't. Um, so my recommendation is to consider this area of precision medicine, stay up to date on it. And when counseling people with type 2 diabetes, think about how it applies in personalizing management. The clinical features that one of the speakers said to consider are A1C, age, duration of diabetes, sex, BMI, estimated glomerular filtration rate, as well as HDL. And these clinical features or biomarkers can 
point to a subtype. However, at the moment, one presenter recommended that clinicians use continuous clinical measures to predict specific outcomes for individuals and called that individualized prediction. That's great, Hope. Thank you. I'd really love for both of you really just to now share with us some of your key highlights. Wow. It's hard to pick a highlight. I think at the overarching level, it's a highlight for me to see dietitians and diabetes care and education specialists from around the world involved in so much cool research. I think sometimes we get so focused on our day-to-day clinical practice that we don't realize how involved in cutting-edge research our colleagues are. And this meeting is a place that really highlights that. I just also want to highlight the fact that I think ADA does a really great job of turning to us as diabetes care and education specialists for helping suggest topics, look for speakers, and make sure that our discipline is really well represented. Hope, would you like to add to that as well? Um, I think I was very struck by the focus on behavioral health. It was very strong at the meeting. Some may know that Mary DeGroote, who's a psychologist in CDE, is president of healthcare and education for ADA this year. I think it was also a very uh, strong behavioral health individual. His name was Michael Harris, who was on the Sessions planning committee. Um, a session focused on strength-based approaches in care really resonated with me. It's an effort to encourage all providers to focus on the positives and identify strengths rather than deficits. So focusing in on what has that person done well. And I know that some work that ADCES is doing around technology is going to speak to that as well. So when you're reviewing glucose data with someone, focus on the numbers that are in range and ask people what they're doing those days that help them get positive results. A take-home message for me in this area is that we as diabetes care and education specialists, and I realize there is overlap here, but that we need to interact more with our behavioral health partners and colleagues. We have a lot to learn from each other. So it seems like there was a lot that you both took away from the sessions this year. What would you recommend for anyone who's listening who wasn't able to attend? I think if you weren't able to attend, do consider it. The online virtual sessions are terrific. I think it's a great investment, especially if you're interested in the science. There's so much data behind all of the presentations. They were all really very evidence-based. So consider going, consider going in the future, and consider ways that you might get more involved, whether it is through membership in one of the interest groups, like the Nutrition Interest Group or the DSMES Interest Group, which if I didn't already mention it, are interestingly the two largest of the interest groups within ADA. Think about ways that either on your own or collaborating with your colleagues that you can suggest topics for presentation next year or even consider submitting some of your own work for abstract or poster presentations. So those are my quick suggestions. Hope? So, I mean, I would echo everything you said, Melinda. I know you and I have both attended this meeting for 
a number of years. And I always come away very much, as I said in the beginning, with my brain stretched. So obviously attending the meeting for the content, but in addition, as a presenter, as a diabetes care and education specialist presenter, you represent the increasing ranks of skilled and talented members of our community. And when you're there presenting, you're taking note of, and that all comes with being there and interacting. So to get involved in next year's meeting, consider submitting a poster, um, determine who the diabetes care and education specialists are on the scientific sessions planning committee. Allison Everett will be on the 2021 committee as the dietitian, but we all know there's overlap. Um, make suggestions for sessions, share your expertise and desire to speak on specific topics with these individuals. And the following goes without saying, I also encourage you to always attend the Association for Diabetes Care and Education Specialists annual conference, which this year is being made relatively inexpensive and there are no associated travel costs because it will be virtual. And I hope in air quotes to see you there. Thank you both so much, Melinda and Hope. It really has been so nice to get this recap and really have this opportunity to get a taste for ADA 2020. And I'll echo Hope. I am really looking forward to, air quotes, seeing everyone at ADCES 20. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks, Hope. Thanks, Joanne. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today, we gathered just a small sample of some of the emerging science in the world of nutrition that was presented at ADA 2020. I hope hearing about this research has motivated you to get more involved in your own capacity. If you missed the ADA scientific sessions this year, or if you want to continue your learning and development, please make sure to register for the virtual ADCES 20 annual conference where you'll hear from the leaders in diabetes care and technology, network with colleagues, and access over 30 CEUs, all for the member rate of $99. Register today at adces20.org and learn more about the education, networking, and resources available through ADCES membership at diabeteseducator.org join. As always, notes from today's discussion can be accessed at diabeteseducator.org slash podcast. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.